0: The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that He performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served the Baals and the Astaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you." And the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Amorites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and and obey his voice and not rebel against the commander of the Lord... And in both, both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. It will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. It is, not, is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For you have added to all of our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid, you have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people, for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you will still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you you. And your king. This is God's word. Well, this whole chapter is like a courtroom trial. What we see in this chapter really unfolds a a courtroom drama, and it includes all the stuff that we might expect in a courtroom drama. It it has cosmic treason. It has lawyers. A judgment is rendered. It has dramatic sentencing and a verdict that has been given. This chapter, if we look at this and give ourselves to it, we will see it is more dramatic than an episode of CSI. It's more suspenseful than that iconic scene in A Few Good Men, you know the one, that exchange between Lieutenant Caffey and Colonel Jessup. I want the truth, you can't handle the truth. You guys with me? It's more compelling than John Grisham's thriller, The Client, or more relatable example for you all. It has all the plot, intrigue, and surprise of My Cousin Vinny. I mean, that's my favorite courtroom drama by far. It may seem strange to have in the middle of this story of God's people and rescue for his people, strange to see such a a legal battle unfolding before us. But for God's people, legal battles are as old as the Garden of Eden. And it's because of this covenant relationship that God has with his people. A covenant is a binding agreement. It's a legal agreement between two parties with blessings when those agreements of that covenant are upheld and curses To the party who breaks that covenant. And God took for himself a people and he promised to be their God. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will bless you and I will keep you and I will take care of you. And every time there was a conflict between God, every time an accusation was brought against God or brought against the people, it was as if they were brought up into a courtroom in heaven. And if the people proved to be right, and justified in what they were doing, then God would be condemned. But if, the, if God proved to be right, then the people would be condemned. And just so you know, God remains undefeated still to this day. This is how it worked in a covenant relationship. There was an agreement, and there were offenses, and there was trial, and the guilty party was convicted and condemned. Let's look first, let's look at what's going on in this passage and then see, as we will easily see, um, implications for us in our life today and how this trial is relevant for our lives. Here are some brief details of the passage if you follow along. Look at the people. The people of God are the accusers. God himself is the one being accused. Samuel is God's lawyer and the works of God and all that God has done are the witnesses or the evidence of God's character. uh, Vouching for God's character and what he has done. So God's people ask for a king, and in asking for a king, they are wanting to be like other nations, and they are wanting to substitute God out and bring someone else in. And asking for a king, as we know from our study in this book, is that it's rejecting God. Asking for a king is to reject God. They say, we want, we want a different leader. And their defense was this. We had to take things into our own hands. Uh, people were beating, up, beating us up. The other nations were bullying us and uh, being mean to us, and, and you've failed us, God. We've, we've trusted you, and, and you have brought defeat to us, and so we need to seek somebody else out who can actually protect us and take care of us. And so the prosecution rests. That's their, that's their big case. God, you have not been good to us. Look at all that has happened. We chose a different leader. Now it's your time to speak. So Samuel stands up. Samuel sa- stands up as, as God's lawyer, and he says, Let me remind you, of what always happens you get into trouble because of things that you have done in a life of sin of disobeying god that life of sin catches up with you and makes your life miserable bad things happen and you eventually cry out to god and god in his great compassion hears your cries and he rescues you and that happens over and over and over again and then samuel brings in like evidence he brings in witnesses into the courtroom and he says exhibit a Egypt. Our father Jacob went into Egypt, and our people became great, and the Egyptians oppressed Jacob's people, and killed them, and whipped them, and enslaved them, and eventually They cried out to God for help and God heard their cry and sent them Moses and Moses rescued them by God's mighty hand. They were rescued from slavery and the greatest army in the world was defeated. That's what God did. And not only did he rescue you, but he brought you into this promised land. He brought you into this place where you can live and have identity and a place to worship God freely. Exhibit B, Canaan. And I told you before you go into Canaan to worship me in this new place and 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 do not turn back from my blessings but serve me and serve me only but you came into Canaan and you saw there were other gods there and other idols and you bowed down to those false gods and you rejected me again and that life of sin caught up with you again and you were in despair and you cried out to God for help and God helped you and he rescued you from your enemies And then time went by and you said, God, you're not taking care of us. We want a better leader. Exhibit C, you wanted another king. And here comes Saul. You asked for a king even when God told you to trust him, that he is your king. And it turned out really bad. Surprise, surprise. It turned out really bad. So here you are today at a crossroad. You can either repent again of your sin or you can continue in your ways. Going the way you want and not trusting God. Now this is where things get really interesting in this story. We might expect there to be this, now now it's their turn again to speak and to give a defense for why they did what they did. Samuel does something that we are thankful for, at least I'm thankful for, doesn't happen in the American legal system. He does something that I'm so thankful for. Samuel goes immediately from presenting evidence, presenting his case, presenting the witnesses, to a verdict, immediately to a conviction, straight to sentencing, in one breath. Samuel himself becomes the lawyer, the jury, the judge, the sentencer, and the executioner all in one. God literally brings down thunder and rain in judgment on their sin. They never get a chance to present reasons they felt valid for their disobedience, and Israel is stunned. They don't even get to a rebuttal. They don't get, even get to talk because when God's judgment is given, when the case is closed, There's no arguing. When God speaks, the conversation is over. And when the witnesses are presented, God's name is vindicated. Maybe they expected some give and take, some lenient understanding that they were just having a hard season in their life, and and God would maybe be flexible with them and understanding their human nature. But they get no chance, only a verdict, only sentencing, and straight to judgment. And it terrifies them. And they see in, in, in harvest time, where before they're about to harvest their wheat for the season, they see God's thunder and lightning and rain destroy their crops. And God is, God is seen for who he is, his strong hand of judgment. And they're scared. And they say exactly what you might say in a moment like this. They say, our bad, Samuel, please ask God not to kill us. They are just shaking and they say, can you ask him not to kill us? That's how scared they were. And Samuel says he won't. He's not like you. He's not going to break his promises to be faithful to you. Even though you're faithless, he is faithful. Now, for many reasons all that you could already see, the implications for our life today and what is happening here are many. I want to talk about three today. One is that all sin is accusation against God. All sin is accusation that God is not good and that he doesn't know what's best for us. Second, it's by God's grace that we become God's people and by grace that we stay God's people. And lastly, a way forward. Samuel will show us a way forward as God's people as we are rehearsing the gospel story in our lives and remembering all the great things that God has done. So let's get into that first. All sin is accusation against God that he is not good Or that he doesn't know best for us. Every sin as its core is an accusation of God. God, you don't know what you're talking about. I know better. Or or, you don't know what's good. You don't understand the big picture. And this goes back all the way to the first sin in the Garden of Eden. God God tells Adam and Eve, don't eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden or you will die. And Satan comes in and tempts Eve and says, are you going to really die? maybe God's missing something. Does he really know all there is to know? I mean, after all, look at the food. It looks good to taste. It looks good for nourishment. Uh, Maybe it won't kill you, actually. Maybe it'll make you stronger. And so Eve eats and sin uh, rushes into her life and all of creation is broken. It's the same with people today. It's the same with us. If we lie, we are saying the God of truth who tells us to be honest doesn't know best. He doesn't understand. If we worry, we are saying the God who holds the future in his hands cannot be trusted. If we steal, we are saying the God who provides is not enough. And every sin is not merely just a sin against another person. Every sin is primarily and always a sin against God himself. That's why there's no such things as little white lies. There's no sins that don't hurt anybody, if you've heard that before. People, we can justify our sin by saying, well, my sin didn't hurt anybody. It was done in private. It wasn't done in public. Uh, It it really didn't go beyond me. Because every sin, every sin is an offense against God's character and nature. When we sin, we are telling God, you're a bad leader and I don't trust you. Every sin that we commit willfully, we are saying, God, you don't know what is best. Every sin, private or public, personal or a collective, it grows out of this common root, the root of rejecting God as our leader. And by bringing this memory uh, of of all that God has done to the memory of the Israelites, Samuel is showing them what Paul would show us much later on in the New Testament in Romans chapter 1, that when we do this, when we sin, we are exchanging the truth of God for a lie, and we worship and serve created things and creature rather than the Creator. This is what they were doing, and this is what we do when we sin. We are, we are changing out God, we are exchanging God, and we are bringing in a lie, and we are trusting in that thing. And our constant turning from, from God to created things the Bible calls idol worship. We may not melt down precious metals and craft for ourselves statues and bow down in worship, We may think that idol worship doesn't happen today or it's something that happens deep within the Amazon uh, for unreached people. But idol worship is very much a part of our culture and our lives today. Idolatry is putting our hope in the product of our own hands. We might worship self. We might worship politicians who promise us a future that we desire if we only trust in them. We might worship our children or our spouse. Even religion and doctrine can become an idol if we put those things in the wrong place. We accuse God of being a bad leader any time we pour our, out our heart in worship to anything but Him. Any time we look at anything and, and desire so strongly that to meet our needs. We put our hope and affection and dreams and longings in those people or that thing? It could be as as we slave away at work every week, frantically seeking to receive affirmation from our achievement or status or money or some other way. What is that thing for you? Well, the verdict is clear for God's people in this story. The verdict is clear and judgment is made. They turn their hearts from God and sought uh, to find the fulfillment of their longing and future in something other than God. Samuel calls on God to send thunder and rain on the wheat harvest, and Samuel presents the evidence, and the evidence is so convincing that he goes straight to verdict and straight to sentencing. And the people stand in awe of that verdict as it's given, and they say this in verse 19. Pray for your servants to the Lord that we may not die, for we have added to all of our sins this evil for asking ourselves for a king. Now, this is really interesting. Do you see what happened here? Not only did they say, okay, you're right. We shouldn't have asked for a king. That was a bad decision on our part. They went from saying in previous chapters, we don't think it's actually that bad to ask for a king. We didn't do anything wrong. They go from that to not only is it bad to ask for a king, everything else in our life is bad too. This is real humility, what is happening. This is a real repentance and a change of heart. God had had changed their heart, convicted them so deeply. They saw sin now through God's eyes. And with that perspective, it wasn't that they just did something bad and they needed to just change their behavior. It's that their whole heart was motivated away from God, longing for something that was not God. I mean, consider this, If if you have children and they're caught in a sin, in a sin of disobedience. They do something they should not have done. And they say, you're, they say I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. That's helpful, and you're glad that there's an acknowledgement of that behavior, but isn't there so much more that you're after? I mean, what if they said to you, you know, Mom and Dad, I did something wrong, but that's really not the issue. The problem is that my heart is broken, and I need that to be fixed. You're like, what the is going on? You see, it, it's not so much that the Israelites say, we goofed. We shouldn't have asked for a king. The real acknowledgement of sin is like, yes, that was wrong. But our desire for a king is deeply rooted in a heart that does not trust God. And that's the real sin. That's the deeper issue. And that's what we need to repent of. Do you see the change here? At first they're saying, no, it's it's not bad asking for a king. Now they're saying asking for a king was the, the least of all things that we did bad. Everything else in our life is evil. Our hearts are not turned towards God and we are sorry. It's only when we see sin from God's perspective that we're really convinced to turn from it. And this is what God does. He shows them, he convicts them, convinces them and opens their eyes to see the great thing that they had done, the great offense. They were not wrong just because they did a bad thing, but because their hearts turned from God which became the motivation for everything they did. And then Samuel, Samuel's response is significant. It's important for us. And it brings us to our second point, is that it's by God's grace we are made God's people. It's by God's grace we are kept his people. God's people, remember, stand in awe of this judgment that's been passed. They're terrified uh, by what has been carried out, but it's not the end of the story because God is gracious. Think about this. Think about a time when someone has come to you and uh, admitting sin. And think about how the world might respond to acknowledgement of wrongdoing. There's a couple dominant ways people respond to sin today. The first would be maybe with a response like this You're right. What you did was bad. And you should feel very ashamed of yourself. I really hope you'll change. That's one way. Another way is saying this. What you did really wasn't that bad. I mean, sure, maybe you shouldn't have done it, uh, but everyone makes mistakes. So do I. So do you. Uh, we all make mistakes. We all sin, and one sin is not worse than another, and I know that you're a good person. You may, you may have sinned, but you're, you're not horrible, and you're trying to get better, so keep just trying to get better, um, and, and everything's going to be okay. Don't sweat it. Just try to do better next time. You'll get another chance. Those are the two common answers that we get. I want you to see that Samuel avoids both of those answers, and so should we. Here is what he says when they come to him and say, we have done a horrible thing. He says, yes, that was evil. But you don't have to be afraid. This is intriguing, and this is so different from how the world responds. Samuel neither dismisses their sin or the severity of it, he calls it evil. He calls it wicked. Nor does he dismiss their potential for forgiveness or dismiss the hope that they have in the forgiveness of God, and neither should we. It's as if he is saying, you're right. You are a sinner, but you don't have to stay a sinner. You are right. You, turn. you did the worst thing you could possibly do. You turned your heart from God who loves you, but you could turn back to a God who cares for you. Because God is gracious and God is merciful. Despair of our sin is the only thing that drives us to God. And God's great mercy is the only hope for our despair in our sin. Do you see how this works? That our sin, when we call it sin and we look at our sin honestly through the eyes of God, as wicked as it is, that it is rebellion of God, that it is actually telling God, you're a bad leader. I don't want you to be my God that that actually makes our heart heavy. It puts us into a place of despair. But then that makes us in a perfect place to see God's mercy. And God's mercy becomes our only hope. We are driven to a need. And then God presents that need immediately in his mercy, in his forgiveness. Verse 22 is the key to this point where it says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Just look at this verse here. You see all three tenses, past, present, and future of God's action in our life. He has made you his people. He has chosen for himself a people because of his grace. It didn't have anything to do with you. It was actually... It was actually despite your wickedness God made you his people. God is still working in you and calling you into repentance, and God will never leave you. We see past, present, and future. Our sin was great, but God's grace is greater. We continue to fail in sin, but God's grace sustains us. And it is not the endurance of our actions that keep us in God's love, but the endurance of God's actions and his character past, present, and future, all of God's actions and work in our life is all grace, all the way. And Samuel shows God's people the dual nature of following God. Here's the dual nature of following. What does it mean to follow God? It isn't just purely just knowing you're a sinner and asking for forgiveness. It isn't just reflecting on his love for you. The dual nature of God is this. First, the ugliness of sin. And second, the beauty of his grace. And the more that we know how to learn of these things, engage of these things, and acknowledge these things, the more more we will have capacity to know, love, and serve God with all of our heart. The same two things are seen at the cross of Jesus. God made a decision. His decision was to bring to Himself a people to love and to know and to enjoy, and he will never go back on his decision to do that. His whole reputation depends on it. He is so much a God of integrity and faithfulness that he gave his only son in order to preserve his integrity that he will not give up on his people. And on the cross of Christ, we see the ugliness of sins. Why, did he, why was he hanging on the cross? He's hanging on the cross because our sin is that bad. That even the smallest sin in our own eyes is rebellion against God. It's cosmic treason. It is telling God, we don't like you as our leader. We don't trust you as our leader. We want somebody else. We see the ugliness of sin on the cross manifested in a a, a man who bleeds to death. And the, the gruesomeness of the event. But we see the beauty of God's mercy. That a perfect man would be crucified and die for the sins of sinful people. That a man who did nothing wrong would die in the place of people who did everything wrong. What a God. What a beautiful, merciful God. This great hope is not where Samuel ends his statements He continues to show them a way forward he says now that you know now that you see the severity and reality of your sin the ugliness of your sin and you see the beauty of god's mercy i want to help you go forward i want to help you now live a life where you can help yourself remember all the great things that god has done and you could live a life in light of his great mercy to you and and he ends there and that's where we will end as well where he where we look at now a way forward by rehearsing the gospel story Remember this, God will save his people and nothing will get in the way with that. The Israelites are so prone to forgetting this that Samuel says, it would be a sin of me to actually leave you guys because uh, you guys keep sinning, you keep repeating in this, you keep uh, engaging in this pattern of, of, of rejecting God, crying out for mercy, God forgiving you, you making a promise to never do it again, and then as quickly as you make that, end that phrase, you keep doing it again. So I'm going to intercede for you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to instruct you so that you can remember what God has done and live your life out of all that God has done for you in His great mercy. Throughout Israel's story, we see the repetition of sin, then grace, then restoration, then sin, then grace, then restoration. And this pattern is seen in our lives as well. Do you see that in your life? Can you remember that time where you, remember the last time or recent time where you were just, you acknowledged your own sin and you knew that you were in sin. You cried out to God for help. You were reminded of his mercy and love for you in Jesus Christ. You grabbed hold of that mercy and you were comforted by it. And then you probably did something to the extent of this by saying, God, I'm not going to do that anymore. From now on, I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to be a better person. And just as quickly as you can end that phrase, your thoughts wander And you go right back to that place. You find yourself in sin again. You beat yourself up. You feel shame and guilt. Eventually, that lifestyle of neglecting God and letting your heart wander in small doses away from God calls you, brings you to despair. You cry out to God again. He reminds you of His grace. You thank Him for His forgiveness. And then you're right back at it again. Even so, God keeps calling us. God keeps pursuing us. He keeps inviting us. And the Old Testament is a story... Of how God continually shows up even when we walk away. He calls his people back to himself and he provides a way for them to be forgiven and to enjoy the relationship with him again. The Old Testament is a story of how God proved that he would be a covenant keeping God even when we are covenant breakers. The Old Testament is our story. The Old Testament is God's evidence and care for you and for me. Their miracles are our miracles. Their rescue is our rescue. Their hope is our hope. For they hoped in the word of God. And some may think, well, there was two different ways to be saved. There was the salvation uh, for the Old Testament people, and there's salvation for us and Jesus today. But the way to be saved has never changed. The Bible has made that crystal clear. The way to be saved, the way to forgiveness of sins, has always been faith in God's word. It has always been to trust God with our hearts and what he has said. We need to be reminded of that every single day because we're so prone to wander from it. Samuel, what a great friend that they had in Samuel. He says, hey, I'm staying here. I'm not going to leave you, but I'm going to teach you. I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to be a priest. I'm going uh, to intercede for you. You have something to say to God. I'm going to take those prayers and bring it to God. God has something to say to you. I'm going to take it to you and remind you of all that he has done, and I'm not going anywhere. Question is, who's the Samuel today for us? We need to be reminded of this, we forget it so often. Is it is it me? Am I am I your Samuel, your pastor that's teaching you and encouraging you and praying for you? Is it James as our worship leader that, that works through this liturgy on Sunday morning? Is it is it us? Is it just this is it the collective body of Christ that teaches and encourages and reminds and prays for? Well, in a way, yes. In a way all that is true as we are to remind one another of the gospel story and all that God has done. But in another way, uh, that's not true. It's not us. It's not you, me, or James, and any, or other pastor or leader in our church. Not long after Jesus died, he resurrected, and he meets with his disciples, and he meets with them on a hill, and he, he assures them. He says, I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. I will remind you of all that I have done, and my word to you. I will be with you forever, wherever you go. And then he ascends up into heaven out of their sight. I mean, what, what, into the clouds, out of the realm of their, of their view. I mean, what is this? Jesus is saying, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you, forsake you, and then like, vanishes. I mean, what a cruel joke. Was this some kind of like retirement or send off? Is Jesus just now in heaven saying, that was hard work, but now I'm so glad I get to rest. Why is he in heaven? It reminds me of, yeah, Rose and Jack on the Titanic. You know, she says, I'll never let go. And then like the next thing she does is like, see you later. What, is, is that what Jesus do? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And then he ascends into heaven, sits on the throne. What is he doing? Jesus had to go to heaven to sit on the throne to be our priest, to intercede for us, to encourage us, to send the Holy Spirit to convince and convict our hearts of all that he has done for us, to turn our hearts back to him. What a great thing to have a friend like Samuel, right? I mean, what a great way that this ends. We see the life of these people and Samuel says, You're really bad, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you till the very end. Samuel did the best job that he could do as a priest to remind the people of God's love, but Samuel ultimately was a failure. Samuel was a sinner. He did not do it perfectly. We have a much better Samuel today. Jesus finishes and perfects the job Jesus prays for us. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to remind us of God's love and work on our behalf. We gather on Sunday morning for such a great purpose and cause. What are we doing here? Why do we get out of bed and and get get everybody out of the house and and come to church? We do it more than just to sing a few songs and put on some nice smiles and hear a good lesson for our life and just have this. Is this just like a, a pro Jesus pep rally? What are we doing today? You may notice the order of our Sunday and why we do the things that we do. What we're doing on Sunday, we are gathering on, sun, on Sunday. We are getting together all of our energy, all of our, excuse me. Get really passionate when I talk about Sunday. We gather all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our desires, all of our tension, attention on things, and we try to gather everything together to consider all the great things that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We are gathering to remember the brutal story of our wickedness and the ugliness of our sin, and as we look at the cross, we see Christ crucified, God's love poured out for us, and we get to see the glorious beauty of His mercy Apart from which we will be swept away with our sin, away from God. The gospel is not a story of all the good that we have done or even the good that we want to do as Christians. The gospel is a story of all the good that God has done for us. And frankly, you and I forget that. Monday through Saturday, we go in and out of remembrance. And every week, God has set apart this day and he says, don't neglect to meet together. Don't neglect to remember this story. Don't neglect to, to, to acknowledge the ugliness of your sin, to confess your sins, to be encouraged in the truth. Don't neglect to, be, to remember this story together as my people. Come every week. Remember and in and, and, and all your strength. Engage in this story. Practice what this means so that we serve him faithfully with our lives bringing glory to him, joy to our lives so that we serve him as we should this passage shows us that the key to life with God is this continual rediscovery of the deep reality of all that God has done for us what is the key to the Christian life it isn't making promises to God and trying to be better the key to the Christian life is this continual and increasing rediscovery reminding ourselves of all that God has done for us in Jesus God is holy God is good God is a a leader and king over us that deserves our worship. We turn to so many things to worship God. Our sin is ugly. Jesus saves us, fills us with his love and presence, tells us that he will never give up on us, that he's with us wherever we go. We now go into our life applying these truths into everything we do, our relationships, our work, the needs in our community, our parenting, and our marriage. The goal of the Christian life is to rediscover all that God has done for us so that we are serving Him faithfully as we should. But there is this kind of difficult thing right smack dab in the middle of this passage where God says, I will never forsake my people. And then Samuel says, but if you continue this wickedness, you'll be swept away. Is that kind of like a rose and a jack situation? I will never let go, but if you cross me one more time, so help me. (laughs) Is, this how, is that what he's saying? We need to clear that up. We need to understand this because this can make us feel really insecure. God is saying, I will never forsake my people. And verse, in this passage, verse 24 shows us exactly who his people are. What does it mean to be his people? Who are God's people? Who are God's people that, are, that, that can trust in the security of God's faithfulness and forgiveness for their lives? It's not all people. Not all people are God's people. It is not a certain kind of ethnic person. It is not a certain kind of person that is born into a Christian home. Being born into a Christian family does not mean you, that you are God's people. The scriptures make this utterly clear. Just because you're born into a family or born at a certain place or even do certain things does not mean that you belong to God. God's people are those in our passage who serve him full of faith in the great things that he has done. What does this mean? God's people are those who are not perfect, who not serve him perfectly, but serve him full of faith. Faith in the great things that he has done. To be God's people is to serve Jesus in faith for all that he has done. How do you know that you belong to God and you are his people and therefore recipients of his covenant-keeping promises? Is Jesus your hope? Is he your salvation? Do you trust in him? Do you desire to serve him, obeying his commands and all that he does? Not as, the basis, not as the basis of your salvation, but as a symptom and sign of your trust in him. The people have said we are, our hearts have turned from God, and so we are now turning our hearts to God and faithfully serving him. Samuel says that's how you know if you belong to God, if you trust him, if he is your hope. God's people are those who serve him full of faith. And if we don't serve him, if we don't trust in God, then we're serving something else. We're trusting in something else that will ultimately fail us. And Samuel says, therefore, you'll be swept away. We're only as secure in our salvation as Jesus is in the love of his Father. And he loves him so much. He is secure in the love of God. So if we are in Christ We are secure in the love of God forever. Nothing can separate us. Where we are faithless, where we sin, where we go on sinning, God will fulfill his promise to seek us out, to hunt us down, to call us back to him, to soften our hearts so that we repent of sin and ask for forgiveness. My last encouragement to you is what, what does God do with people who have committed spiritual disaster? What does God do with people like the Israelites who have committed spiritual disaster? What does God do with you and me? He says this. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Yes, you have done this evil, but look at what I have done for you. Yes, it is true. You have committed this spiritual disaster, but look at what I have done for you. I will rescue you. I will forgive you, and I will save you. That means don't look back. Don't look back and wallow in your guilt. Don't relive that tragic mistake that you can never forget, thinking, but how could God love me? Because I know that God is love, but I've done some really bad things. He would say, yes, you have. But I'm not giving up on you. Look at what I have done. No, we go forward. We go forward in basic, simple faith in his unmerited pleasure for us. And we serve him with all of our heart, all of our mind, and all of our strength because he's good, because he's worthy, and because he'll never give up. Let's.